Good evening, everybody in Alberta, Canada and beyond. It is Wednesday, July 26, 2023, and I'm Carrie Lambert, and I welcome you to an online webinar evening of solutions for a new Alberta brought to you by the Alberta Prosperity Project, also known as APP. Our purpose is to educate, inspire, and unite all Albertans, businesses, and organizations to protect their prosperity, individual freedoms, rights, and sovereignty by empowering the Alberta government to restructure Alberta's relationship with Canada. APP is membership-driven with a goal of a million-plus members to help steer the political process. And uh, we've been asked if, if you have to be an Albertan to join APP. Uh, and no, actually, in fact, we encourage anyone to join, especially if you believe in freedom and are watching what's going on in Alberta and Canada. APP memberships are one year for $20, two years for $30, three years for $40, and you can also make a donation at this beautiful website right here, albertaprosperityproject.com. We also have APP merchandise at Alberta Prosperity Store, and that's this. And you can actually even get one of these fancy dancing t-shirts just like I'm wearing. Walk around, take it to a grocery store, and uh, strike, strike up a conversation with the person ahead of you. That's uh, that's kind of what these things are about, and uh, and even caps and uh, that that all that cool stuff there. We also have a registration you can do for the petition to force a referendum on Alberta's independence, and you can go to that under bid.ly/abvoteyes. I'll put that in the little banner at the bottom here. That way you can see. And uh, so right now we've got about you know. 12,500 signatures somewhere in there. We're hoping to get this a lot higher. Ideally, we would want 600,000. Um, and, and it kind of just helps the, the, the getting the, the, uh, the word out as well as getting, uh, uh, getting people aware of what's going on so that when a referendum is called, we can actually go back to this database of names and addresses and emails and we can get people signed up right away. And uh, so that's kind of the idea behind that. And the other thing I should also mention too is uh, you've probably heard that there's some censorship laws out there now formed by our illustrious federal government. And, uh, and because of that, they are unable to show news links. And I guess technically we would be news, or at least I tend to think of ourselves as being a bit of a news uh, source. People do come and they, they tell me that all the time. So because of that, we may actually not get as many links uh, being sent out. So I ask you to please share, share, share. If you can, uh, we are on uh, various platforms. We're Facebook, Rumble, BitChute uh twitter uh and i should probably actually have a list of them but there's quite a few of them you can always just do a search for alberta prosperity project and on your local uh social media so with that tonight's webinar is entitled canada's covid the story of a pandemic moral panic and uh, which is the title of a book written by our guest tonight marco navarro genie that he co-wrote with barry cooper and of course, we also have APP's very own Dr. Dennis Moudry on tonight, which is which is always great to have him on. Uh, and of course, this is a live webinar, so we encourage you to ask questions and make comments throughout this presentation. Just put uh, three question marks before your questions, so it'll be flagged and we can quickly view those questions. And with that, I will bring Marco and Dennis on. 
Hello, gentlemen. How are you tonight? Good evening. Excellent. Excellent. Good to have you both on. Uh, of course, anybody that's watched our APP webinars before, they already know who Dr. Dennis Modry is, uh, and we will get to that in a second. <laughs> but of course, we're all, all excited about having Marco on. Marco, do you want to maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself and, and how you got involved with, well, uh, as, essentially writing books and, and et cetera, et cetera, because that's obviously what we're going to be talking about is, uh, is your book today. Sure. Um, yeah. Thank you. As you can probably hear from my Scottish accent, uh, <laughs> I, was, uh, I was born in Central America yeah, yeah. Um, in, uh, in Nicaragua. I, I came to Canada as a political refugee, uh, originally uh, came to Quebec. And, um, and sometime after finishing my bachelor's, I came to, uh, to Alberta, mm -hmm. to Alberta uh, basically because uh, the conservative movement in Alberta was, was rather, rather strong. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I came to study with uh, people sort of loosely known as the Calgary School at the University uh, of, of Calgary. Um, I am originally some, uh, a bit of a, an academic. I'm a, I'm a reformed academic, I should say. Uh, I taught in universities for 20 years, in, uh, taught political science and history, among which uh, I taught Alberta politics as well. And, uh, and after 20 years of that, I went into uh, what is also loosely known as the, the freedom movement, uh, a collection of public policy institutes. Uh, the latest of which uh, is the Holtain Research Institute, where I currently am uh, the president and founder. Okay. Awesome. So having said all that, so how did, how did you actually yeah, come to write this particular book? And actually, I'm just going to show this up here. Um, and the book itself is called Canada's COVID, The Story of a Pandemic Moral Panic. And it is on Amazon if you're interested in, in going and taking a look at that. And, uh, of course, you you uh, co-authored this with uh, with Barry Cooper. And, and how did you meet Barry Cooper? Was that through the university as well? Uh, yes. Uh, Barry was in my uh, PhD examination uh, committee, actually. Okay. Uh, yeah. And uh, he is one of the people that I came to Alberta uh, to uh, to study with. Okay. So, um, you know, so I've known Barry for 30-some years. Uh, at the beginning of the COVID event, as we call it in the book, because uh, we don't want to lend it uh, too, too much credibility on mm -hmm. on certain issues, uh, COVID is a real thing. I am, not, you know, we're not COVID deniers, mm -hmm. and, and and COVID did make uh, a, a significant number of people sick. Um, so I, I want to put that on the on the record because uh, we get called all, all kinds of different things. But mm -hmm. in any case, um, we uh, originally. Uh, wrote this little li this little guy okay. uh, which is you know about a hundred and some pages a bit of a booklet uh on what we saw happening uh, do you want to just show that COVID. can you show that book again now that uh yes. the screen's a little bit bigger okay so it, it's it's this one is called the politics of a pandemic moral panic okay uh and uh so it was our, our original take on the fact that um when you when you looked at what was going on after the first initial two weeks of panic, yeah. uh, most of which you know ceased uh, uh, people left, right, and center, uh, it became evident that other people were doing different things, that the mortality rate that they had 
panic this uh, with was not happening, mm -hmm. that the images that had been coming from, from Spain, from Italy, from Iran, from China, uh, were a, a complete exaggeration, some of which were already made up, mm -hmm. uh, that the comparison to the, to the Spanish flu, where mm -hmm. in Alberta, you know, people who have read about the Spanish flu in Alberta, people were dropping dead on the streets. Yeah. There were wagons coming to collect the dead once a week through the neighborhoods. Uh, it was horrible. Yeah. And, and so to say that, A, that COVID was similar or worse and that it had no precedent in the history of the world mm -hmm. was was a, was such an aberrant and outlandish exaggeration yeah. that we decided to start looking at not only why it was happening but how mm -hmm. and so that was the origin of the first book which we published pretty early in the in the pandemic mm -hmm. uh, in uh, in the fall of 2020 and uh, and of course we thought you know this nonsense is is going to end soon so let's hurry up and publish this book and yeah. uh, and try to get the word out we we never anticipated that this was going to last nearly 3 years mm -hmm. and so as things just continue rolling on and as uh, one of my friends used to say uh, the uh, uh, the politicians and the and the medical bureaucrats kept proving the conspiracy theorists right mm -hmm. almost at every turn yeah. Uh, we decided we were going to write the expanded version, which is the one that you have that yeah. you have shown. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it is now nearly uh, 500 pages uh, a volume, wow. uh, 100 and so pages of which are uh, footnotes and, um, and and essentially uh, we want to make sure because the conspiracy theory label comes up uh, several mm -hmm. times. It was one of the first questions that we were asked when we first published the the, the first edition of the book. Uh, we wanted to make sure that things were annotated, that the evidence was presented. And so there are nearly 100 pages of, of, of notes uh, connecting to the information that we present. Basically, now the book is if you look at what, what's been happening in the last sort of six months or so, uh, the book does present an explanation of what happened and how and why. And it's an analysis of what we called the, the knowledge class mm -hmm. uh, and, and how it wrestled power, uh, however briefly, uh, from, from the existing institutions. But what it also offers essentially is a record of what happened. And, and this is important uh, for many reasons. Uh, we have seen already that the medical bureaucrats and the, the politicians have been going way, way out of the way to sort of have a kind of a mass gut gaslighting about what happened and didn't happen or, mm -hmm. or pretending that many things didn't. In the, the, the most blatant example, uh, that, that comes to mind, and there are many, was the prime minister of this country testifying in front of the Rulo Commission. That was yeah. the commission that was uh, struck uh, to look at the uh, invocation of the Emergencies Act. And he, mm -hmm. looking straight into the camera, without even blushing, said, I, I had nothing to do with, with uh, mandates for vaccines. Uh, we, we, we didn't do that. Uh, and so, um, most of your viewers 
who have looked around know, as well as you and I, that yeah. uh, there are things that you now start looking at or researching on the internet and they are disappearing or have disappeared. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of stuff that is being taken down. There's a lot of reinterpretations that, that are sort of being presented. Uh, you know, uh, some people joke that 1984 is not a novel anymore, is sort of current events. Yeah, that's exactly what the main character in the novel uh, uh, spent his time uh, doing, was mm -hmm. changing constantly uh, the record to reflect things that the powers that be yeah. now wanted to have. And so the, 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 it's gone from the politics of a pandemic moral panic to, to the story mm -hmm. uh, because uh, the story needs to be told. The story needs to be understood. It essentially frames uh, a period of three years in which the largest, um, the largest trampling and violation of constitutional rights and civil rights in this country um, in the last, well, hundred years. Really, we have to go back to you know sort of the rounding up of the Japanese uh, um, and the Ukrainians and the Germans. Um, around the first, uh, around the first and second world wars, um, and and then of course uh, the the uh, the the War Measures Act in in Quebec in in 1971. Mm -hmm. So not since have we ever seen the wholesale trampling and violation of civil rights and constitutional rights of of, of Canadians. Yeah. So this is not just a, a, a one-off. Uh, it's a significant event in the history of this country. And, uh, and we take tremendous pains in documenting it. Yeah. So obviously with those uh, 500 pages, um, there's a lot of stats and, uh, and hopefully they're all, you know, relevant in there. And especially if you list off a web page or something, I hope that's that web page is still there and not deleted because it, like you said, it certainly seems to be, that's uh, the way the uh, censorship certainly seems to be going. Yep. Yes, uh, a lot of the stuff that that we present that is web-based, we took screen grabs Good. Yeah, and, yeah. and have photographs uh, yeah. of it. So, yeah. uh, if if you know, it, it may be in future that we have to reconstruct uh, these sources and put them up on our website. Yeah, we haven't forgotten about you, Dennis. If you if you wanted to chime in at any time, by all by all means. I mean, it's it's this is all. Uh, you know, this is all relevant stuff that we've been talking about, certainly amongst ourselves anyways. And uh, and people are becoming more awake when you get uh, a doctor like uh, Dr. Uh, uh, William Mackis, uh, who, who talks about some of the uh, the injuries that have, have happened. And uh, and even in Dr. Peter McCullough and talking about, you know, how the government was dealing with uh with uh, handing out the vaccines and, and that. So people are um, getting a little bit more aware of what's going on and it's becoming more mainstream. And I, I think having a book like this is definitely worth even uh, even putting on your own coffee table and then inviting your neighbors and your friends over for a coffee. Because uh, I actually have a couple of books on my coffee table that uh, I, I invited my parents over one day and uh, and they actually took a look at it. My dad took a liking to one, so he actually took it home. So you know those are these these things are are are, are great to have. And of course, ideally, you want to read it, and then you're armed with, uh, with some stats that you can even be talking to other people about as well. So, 
Well, let me make a couple of comments. Uh, yeah. First of all, uh, it's wonderful to be on with uh, this uh, luminary, uh, Marco. Yeah. And um, it's a privilege to work with Marco on another uh, project that we're involved with as well. I haven't had an opportunity to read your book, Marco, but I'm very much looking forward to it. A couple of things that you said that uh, struck me as really uh, very interesting. Um, you mentioned that a number of the scientific articles that had been published have been taken down or modified. And um, <clears throat> this dovetails with what I was seeing in the first year of the of the uh, of the actually the first two years, but particularly in the first year, as I looked at a number of the articles that were supporting the mandates, um, what struck me was the problems with the methodology of those studies. And uh, notwithstanding that um, uh, during that period, because of course the vaccines didn't become, if I can even use that term, uh, I, I'll call it the vax jab because it really isn't a vaccine by conventional terms. Right. It wasn't available till December of 2020. Um, but prior to that, even the evidence for the mandates um, wasn't there if you looked at the methodology. Um, and as you know, when you're looking at a scientific article, uh, if the conclusion is valid, the methodology has to be valid. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the way you determine um, whether or not you can trust a conclusion. And as you know, in the medical world, uh, when, when we want to uh, validate a study, there are multiple other studies with proper methodology uh, that support the original, the original conclusion. Mm -hmm. So for me, um, I noticed that there was a complete dearth of validity to those, um, those initial studies. And I was particularly struck when um, the Great Barrington Declaration came out on October the 4th of 2020. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then subsequently, I wrote two open letters to the Premier, of which um, first one, I think, was on December the 11th of 2020, and the next one was that. Three, three months later um, in response to the Premier's response, which uh, came three months after my first letter. Mm -hmm. So, But the interesting thing was is he couldn't refute any of the evidence that I provided uh, in those two open letters, which I thought was quite interesting. One of what there are several things here, um, and so let me ad address your point about the initial studies. Yeah. Um, on on the on the eleventh of March, um, mm -hmm. the the pandemic was declared in in twenty twenty. Twenty twenty, yeah. And uh, in five or six days later, uh, there came this uh, paper uh, from uh, Dr. Ferguson. Uh, in uh, yeah. in in the UK, Neil Ferguson, yeah, Neil Neil Burks, Neil Ferguson, and, uh, and, and he's a and phys he's a physicist who yes, who, oh, who spends his life. Uh, he's not looking a virologist. Stars. He's not not an epidemiologist. He's not, not a all. physician. And yeah. this is this is my point um, that um, he presented essentially a statistical model, as you as you well know. Yeah, uh, and that this statistical model not, not only was it flawed, but on the very basic point 
a statistical model isn't science. Right. It, it, it does not deal with any kind of reality. On the contrary, it constructs a reality uh, on the on the basis of a whole bunch of assumptions that right. may or may not be connected with what is actually going on exactly. and how things happen, and then presented as a uh, as as foresight or as a, or as a prediction of uh, what is going to happen. And uh, a lot of what took place right at the beginning has had essentially to do with nothing but models. That's correct. <coughs> Excuse me. I uh, I. Don't know. I misplaced my glass of water or my glass of vodka. And, and, and there you can have this. Have this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but well, but my, anyway, I so blueberry juice. <laughs> I I, sh I should have brought a glass of water. Um, the other thing is that there was a, ter a terrific amount of manipulation of the data uh, yeah. in the way when they actually presented data. The data was was manipulated and was classified and misclassified in so many different ways Absolutely. all along. It didn't. Yes. It wasn't just at the beginning. Yeah. Um, uh, we all remember the the case of the young man from uh, from Red Deer, uh, whose death was was classified as a COVID death, even That's though right. he had he had brain cancer. Yeah. Uh, and there were doctors in this province who were jumping up and down, saying, "Finally, we have a young person dying of COVID." Uh, yeah. It was the most horribly yeah. morbid thing that I have ever seen. I won't mention names, um, but but uh, I think we all remember who that was. Mm -hmm. uh, th this this was essentially a power play that was going on, yes. uh, and uh, science necessarily invites a conversation between people who are looking almost a, a great deal of time at the exact same data and have different and differing conclusions. That's, right. uh, that's what science is. Yeah. Uh, what we ended up with is with a group of people who co-opted the attention of the government uh, and governments or even panicked uh, governments and then use government as an instrument to placate, <coughs> forgive me, uh, or crush their, uh, their scientific opponents. Yeah, that's correct. In many cases, uh, when things like the Great Barrington Declaration uh, and actual uh, virologists and epidemiologists were cited uh, to, for example, say, since we're talking about Alberta tonight, uh, to Miss Hinshaw, to Dr. Hinshaw, she dismissed it as, uh, oh, well, you know, uh, those people are French scientists, mm -hmm. as though she herself was, you know, the world's most prominent epidemiologist or virologist in the world. Uh, when Lisha Corbella asked her point blank whether she had read the emergency manual of the province of Alberta, she said she was familiar with parts of it. Uh, so all of this goes to show you yes. that uh, the people who were in charge, sure, were scientists, they were experts, they had scientific degrees and whatnot, mm -hmm. but, but they would never admit that there was an equally powerful, if not more knowledgeable segment in the scientific community that directly contradicted what they were doing. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. And that in fact recommended things that were the opposite, as you also mentioned in your yeah. in your letter to the to the premier. Yeah. So what we had and we document in the book is is a, a power struggle in the scientific community. Uh, yeah, and, the, and the that, politicians fell fell yeah. prey to it. That's true. And uh, the other thing that um, Dina Hinshaw admitted to under cross-examination 
is she didn't look at the countervailing evidence, you know, and I thought that was absolutely unconscionable. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I wanted to touch on that you, you referred to was uh, um, indirectly section one of the, uh, of the charter of rights and freedoms, which was a bridge, but basically as, as you may recall, it's the, the it's that charter rights can be limited by law so long as those limits are shown to be reasonable in a free and democratic society correct and that is the problem that exists with the charter and brian peckford who was a co-author the only surviving co-author never intended that section to be used the way it was. He made reference to its use, for example, in an act of war mm -hmm. in right. which our country was being attacked. And so as a recommendation, you know, moving forward, if we can ever get the constitutional clout uh, that we need for change, you could either provide a clear definition uh, such as can only be used uh, in an act of war, or you eliminate that section, section one altogether, mm -hmm. so that individual rights are always supreme to societal rights. Because yes. if you protect societal rights, you'll protect, uh, if you protect individual rights, you'll always protect societal rights, but the reverse doesn't occur. And that's how it came about that our individual rights were abridged. What, one, of the, one of the issues that came up after the creation of, of the charter uh, was that, uh, if section one really gave way to the potential limitation of certain rights, not all rights, but certain rights uh, under specific circumstances, then the court came down with what is called the Oaks test. Mm -hmm. And that means that uh, any attempt at abridging uh, rights of Canadians under that section of the constitution needed mm -hmm. to be subject to this test. There is absolutely not a single case, Dennis, that mm. I am aware of uh, in which the rights of Canadians were abridged under that section and that they were submitted to the Oak test. Mm. There is an obligation of the legislators and the policymakers to say, if we are going to abridge the rights of Canadians under this section of the Constitution, then here's how we're going to do it. And here is how this answers what essentially is a, a mandated uh, test from the Supreme Court of Canada. Mm -hmm. And so in yeah. failing to do that, they were also violating the Constitution. Well, that's, that's correct. But you may have seen the clip of Trudeau stating that we know we're abridging the section one of the charter in terms of individual rights, but we're going to do it anyhow, or mm -hmm. words to that effect. Sure. Yeah. You know. So, did you see that video clip? Of, yes. Of yes, I remember. Yeah. I, I remember yeah. seeing that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, our own premier here in Alberta, <clears throat> when he was asked uh, whether there was going to be um, uh, passports, vaccine passports, they call them, um, he said that there is no way. That we're going to have vaccine passports, and he and he cited um, the uh, the tradition that this is against uh, the the mobility rights, and that it violates certain sections of law and constitution. He was perfectly aware that this was the case when he originally declared that he was not going to do it, and then what six eight weeks later, 
Yeah. Uh, he was stampeded into doing it again. And suddenly yeah. the issues of law and the issues of constitution went out the window yeah. and he never brought them back and he never mentioned them again. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's so, unconscionable. It was it's, unconscionable. It's unconscionable. One of the things I think that uh, I thought it'd be interesting, perhaps on maybe talking a little bit about in, in this context, uh, is the fact that Alberta was quite distinct in how Albertans dealt with COVID. Mm -hmm. um, the government of Alberta, by and large, was very similar in its dealings with COVID as everyone else. Yes. Maybe, maybe not as loony as Quebec, uh, and 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 not as extreme founding yeah. as 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 Ontario. Yeah. But all things being equal, it was within the same parameters of lunacy that we saw just about everywhere in the in the country. Yeah. But what was singularly different about Alberta is how the citizens of this province reacted to it. I think mm -hmm. uh, perhaps, and this is maybe a little bit surprising to, to, to some people, uh, that the greatest resistance against the COVID regime came from Albertans and from Quebecers. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, Quebecers and Albertans have, have a long tradition of, uh, of this, this sort of in-your-face kind of pushback against, against government. We don't yeah. always think of Quebecers that way. Uh, and uh, and the, the the churches and the civil rights uh, groups in the province and even individuals, restaurant owners, business owners, uh, push back very strongly on on government. Maybe they were not as successful as as as, as they might have been, and and we were surprised that the courts and the police services um, simply flopped and flipped right into this whole panic of the of the COVID regime. But it, it remains, nonetheless. Having said all that, uh, Ontario re-elected their 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 government. Quebec re-elected their government. Yeah. British Columbia re-elected their government post-COVID, uh, and we did not stand it. Mm -hmm. uh, we didn't even get to an election. The party in office tossed the premier out of office and yeah. and and reinvented itself in many ways. Yeah. Uh, and here they are back. So yeah. this is a this is a very singular, politically speaking, uh, a very singular event. Uh, what we saw here in in Alberta and how Albertans dealt with it. Yeah, yeah. it's a very good point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And and th that that fills me with joy to tell you the yeah. truth. It, and it fills me with hope. Um, especially for uh, the kind of thing that uh, APP is trying to uh, is trying to do. Right? Well, so I think I think we uh, certainly the three of us and probably everybody watching. Of course, we know that Albertans are uh, a strong-willed. You know, we don't take shit from anybody if we can, right? We're rather independent-minded. We're very. We are, we are a distinct society. Absolutely, yes, and 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 there. That's why the the, the history has been uh, like that, the way it is. I don't know if you know Marco, and and of course Barry, uh, and Barry's not on here, but uh, all of us were actually in the. I'm going to post this up. The Ungovernable, the Rebel News uh, movie, we all had something to do and talk about independence. So, I, you know, when um, when Walter was telling us that uh, you were going to come on, I was actually kind of excited about this because we all know that, you know, we are ungovernable. We're, and, and being Albertans, we had the history of, of uh, you know, how Albertan, how Alberta, 
uh, was brought into Confederation and uh, and basically, you know, what the problems were all the way through that. So I wanted to bring that up because uh, it is it, it's a great movie if you haven't seen it. Of course, things have changed because it came out in September of last year and a lot of things have changed even in terms of uh, uh, our, our own current government. But it is uh, it is something that that uh, we could we could definitely be looking at, um, and, and yeah. I have a question for Marco. Yes, um, before we get into solutions here, right. Marco, and I'm sorry I haven't read your book yet, but I'm looking forward to reading it. Um, tell me, um, did you look at the underlying reasons, uh, you know, for the quote unquote unnecessary pandemic mm-hmm. um did you you know there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there right and yes um uh we 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 we, we do deal with this and uh we, we see it as a kind of a confluence of different streams um and the main one of course is it informs most of the other ones which is the question of fear and, and panic Mm-hmm. Um, and to some extent, people might say that this is conspiratorial, but but there was a change in the mood and the language of the conversation. Uh, in the very first couple of months since we found out that there was COVID, because, uh, of course, we now know that COVID had been running rampant for months mm-hmm. uh, around the world yeah. uh, there is there is evidence going as early as august of 2019 mm-hmm. in which blood donations in france uh have picked up the existence of sars-cov-2 which is uh the the virus that that, yeah. that gives us COVID. so that's you know five months four or five months before it it, it appeared it appeared in china it remains, nonetheless, that uh, the official position of the Minister of Health, uh, the uh, Dr. Tam in Ottawa, and the Prime Minister was very cautious uh, at the beginning, saying um, we, there is no reason there is no reason to to be worried. Uh, there is no great threat posed to Canada. Uh, we were sending. Uh, all kinds of protective gear to to China so much we were not worried that it was going to come here. Uh, the Minister of Health uh, in Canada said uh, we're not going to shut down the borders because you know borders uh, don't stop viruses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, that that was the tenure and sort of the tone of the conversation. And sometime down the line, two weeks later, there was this tremendous panic, uh, and the panic came also not just from the politicians but from the press mm-hmm. and, yeah. and and that I, I cannot explain what why that mood changed and why things went that way except to say that it served to sell newspapers and 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 yes, and, uh, and made yeah. headlines yeah. which then may have panicked the politicians into doing the things that they did once they found themselves in that kind of situation they saw the opportunities to grab as much power as they could. We we talk about this in, in the book. The mm-hmm. federal government proposed such grab of power that had never been done in the history of this country. Mm-hmm. They proposed that the Parliament of Canada relinquished its almost God-given right to look at finances and budgets 
and hand over all that power to the Minister of Finance for a, a number of weeks. I remember, I, I forget right now what the number of weeks was. Mm. That was never contemplated even at the height of the Second World War when we were dealing with an enormous menace yeah. uh, to, the, to the existence of the country. That is the extent to which these people were prepared to grab the opportunity and seize as much power as they could. And let's face it, since COVID, this minority government has ruled as though there is no minority. That's they have true. Ruled, That's they true. have ruled as a majority plus because yeah. they have completely emasculated uh, the yeah. parliament in this country yeah. and, and yeah. parlamentarians. Yeah. And so it, it's uh, in response to your question, it, it's a confluence of issues in which individuals find and groups find themselves uh, with the opportunity to grab more and more power for themselves. And I would say the same thing about the medical bureaucrats uh, and about specifically Alberta Health, uh, mm -hmm. who was already in a in a path of conflict with with the premier here in Alberta over salaries and and what have you, yeah. uh, and and so I, I, I've always viewed AHS for the last twenty five years or so uh, as a kind of state within a state. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. They perceive themselves nearly as independent of the government of Alberta, yeah. and here was an opportunity for them to grab more. The last of which, by the way, they're not done. Uh, as we saw uh, just a few weeks ago, they were hiring Dina Henshaw back. Yes. Yeah. Uh, in defiance, not just in defiance of the premier, for crying yeah. out loud, but in defiance of the Alberta population uh, yeah. who wanted her gone. I know. Uh, that's, that's how much they think they can behave independently it's, and do whatever uh, it, the heck they it's want. It's sort of amusing to think that the premier is probably the only premier that's ever fired a uh, public health official twice. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Let me uh, let me ask you another question um, that may be in your book as well. You know, when you go back in time to 1976 with bird flu um, and the um, vaccine that was developed for it, it was stopped after about 36 deaths um, that had occurred. Um, and and I know it's difficult with respect to accuracy of numbers in terms of the harm and of the deaths that have occurred um, as a result of the, the C-19 jab. Um, but I, I, I became aware, and this is secondhand information, so I don't know if you know if this is true or not, um, but um, AHS and other um, medical authorities and other provinces, as well as the federal government, apparently are subject to um, World Health Organization um, mandates in terms of in terms of uh, financing their pharmaceutical acquisitions. Mm. In other words, I heard it said, and I, again, I don't know if this is true, but I do know that the pharmaceutical industry, multiple companies visited the premier's office many, many times during that awful period that we went through. Um, and I had understood that if we did not, if the government did not impose these mandates uniformly across the country, 
and any province that didn't would pay full price for all pharmaceuticals, mm -hmm. which would have added $19 billion to the pharmaceutical budget in Alberta. So if you're the premier and you're facing an additional $19 billion hit for medications, what do you do? Did you look at, is, is that true? Did you look at that we, uh, issue we, at all? Did you hear We don't look that? at that particular issue. Um, it, 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 it didn't come across our table, to tell you the okay. truth. Uh, I have uh, come across the issue in the American context. Mm -hmm. uh, surprisingly enough, uh, we poked around. We didn't find much information about, about Canada, and, and uh, there is room there to go back and, 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 and probe a little harder. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, the, the American system is set up that uh, an enormous amount of the monies from the royalties uh, mm -hmm. and sales of uh, vaccines go into the CDC uh, and the National Institute of Health. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, th there is a conflict right there uh, mm -hmm. in that these people stand, the, by these people I mean uh, the bureaucrats, stand mm -hmm. to make enormous amount of money for themselves and for their organizations in, yeah. in peddling this. I, I can tell you this for sure, that that having been in the public in the public policy world for as long as I have, and I have dealt with um, the pharmaceutical uh, industry uh, individually and often as a consortium, as mm -hmm. donors yeah. to public policy research, uh, that they don't give anything for nothing, yes. uh, that they demand everything. One of the first things that happened when I first arrived in Atlantic Canada uh, to head the Atlantic Institute for Market Studies was I had a letter uh, from one of the pharmaceutical companies saying, uh, we are looking at renewing uh, our donation to your organization for X number of dollars. Uh, and here is a copy of a letter that we want you to send to the Minister of Health in Ottawa. Mm. Uh, just, you know, we've taken the liberty to write it for you and just, just you know, sign it at the bottom. Yeah, whether you uh, agree or not. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And, you know, so we had to have a meeting and said, you know, this is not how it works. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't dictate to us what we research and how. <laughs> uh, we decide what we research. We decide what public policy uh, is appropriate and, and and is desirable for mm -hmm. for the people in this province, mm -hmm. uh, in these provinces we were dealing with Atlantic Canada, mm -hmm. and and if you agree with what we're doing and you want to support the research that we do, then by all means you give us money, uh, but you're not gonna wag, you know, uh, yeah. a, a bunch of dollars at us and, and tell us what to do because that's not how it works. Yeah. But they play hardball, yeah. I can yeah. tell you that, and so it would not surprise me one bit mm -hmm. uh, if. Uh, what you said was in fact true, but but yeah. we do not deal with that specific issue uh, okay. in in the book. Yeah. Did yeah. you look? Just one more question, and then I'm Carrie. I'm, I know probably wants to go on to more. Um, no, this this is great. This is great. I, I, I have a couple of questions, and I know a okay. couple of other people. Here's, here, here's here's the other one. In your book, do you talk about at all um, uh, death? from COVID, COVID versus death yes. with COVID. Yes. With the virus. Yeah. And th yes, and we do. Just um, the corollary before you answer, in relation to the PCR studies, because I know that one of the things that I had some private intel that our labs at the University of Alberta were running PCR cycle thresholds greater than 30 and 35. Yeah. Um, 
and of course, you can't identify virus um, at those cycle thresholds. And you know, the study from Winnipeg showed that you could only identify C19 virus with cycle thresholds under 20 reliably. Definitely. So there were many people that were miscoded in terms of how they, or, or the cause of their death. They died with a, P, a positive PCR test with cycle thresholds greater than 30, 35 in many instances, but they didn't die from COVID. And so this is part of the genesis of the panic mm -hmm. that occurred. Yes. Is That's the way in which people sure. were defined uh, in terms of their death. Did, did you talk about that at all in your book? Yes, a little bit. Uh, at the very beginning, uh, you might recall that uh, they did not want to make the tests available to people. Mm -hmm. uh, that they were they were holding them in reserve, that they wanted to decide. I mean, this this is sort of uh, again in that framework of uh, clicks trying to grab and maintain power, right? Yeah. Uh, that there were people who wanted to have full control of who got tested and who didn't get tested, yeah. which which is preposterous in light of the fact that you couldn't possibly tell, therefore, how this thing was propagating mm -hmm. if yeah. you didn't have consistent and systematic testing. So that became a problem. And then remember that it wasn't until well into uh, the second year that they made actual tests available for people to, to, That's right. do, it, yeah. to do it themselves. Mm -hmm. And so th there are two sets of problems. Uh, the first set of problem is, uh, of course, the availability or lack of availability, maybe three different problems. Uh, the second one is the problem that you mentioned, is that the calibration of these tests uh, mm -hmm. were, uh, to put it politely, off, if yeah. not wrong, and if not in some cases, deliberately wrong. Yeah. Uh, there, 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 is, there is a connection here, of course, to the uh, newly... Uh, to the exiting Minister of Defense, uh, whose husband deals in uh, uh, COVID tests and, and whatnot and got contracts from the federal government uh, ju just to make things worse. Uh, and the third issue, of course, is that regardless of the calibration and regardless of the availability, uh, there are, right now, I think Belgium is the first state um, fully to come out and rejig all the numbers uh, in relation to what was actually people dying from the disease mm -hmm. and people who had it as a complementary uh, or were mislabeled or they had been mistested or what have you and the, and the difference is significant. Um, because uh, again, there was a pecuniary interest uh, from hospitals and the medical bureaucrats and, and all the stuff that uh, in many places they were getting premiums for dealing with uh, COVID patients. Mm -hmm. And so the more they had COVID patients, uh, the more they, they, would, uh, they would receive, which, is, which leads therefore to, uh, to this aspect of the miscalibration, if yeah. that's what we want to call it. I had COVID in um, January of 21, 
Okay. Uh, I was in there for 10 days. Uh, I, I, I will have to write this story because the story uh, resembles a great deal of what Solzhenitsyn uh, speaks about in, in Cancer Word. There were mm -hmm. systems of punishments and rewards for the, uh, for the patients, in, including me, because I didn't want to take any of the... Um, uh, of the experimental drugs like remdesivir and stuff yeah. like that, and they were yeah. mad as hell yeah. that I wouldn't mm -hmm. take the nonsense that they were they were trying to pump into mm -hmm. me. But all that to say that when I left and I asked for the papers mm -hmm. uh, for my essentially a copy of the file, nowhere in the papers did it say that I had COVID. Mm -hmm. Really, mm -hmm. and they refused to write on the paper that I had COVID. But I guarantee you a thousand times against one that when it was reported, my presence in the hospital was labeled COVID, and that's what they reported uh, to Alberta Health, Health Services. Yeah. So that begs the question, why? I think they smelled the fact that I was sounding quite litigious, uh, and so they left the word COVID out of the paperwork. All this to say in, in one last sentence to answer your question is, is that uh, uh, they were very, very willing, depending on the circumstances, uh, to manipulate the recording of the data, uh, the calibration of the tests, and all that stuff, depending yeah. on what outcome they were looking for. Absolutely, yeah. Well, you know, you, even if you did have it, um, you had a 99.93% probability of surviving for one thing, uh, but you did exactly the right thing by, uh, by not going along. But there's a bigger problem here, and that is, you know, it's, it, it, it just gets back to me as a physician and the Hippocratic Oath and first do no harm. Uh, and informed consent, and that's that really went out the window. Um, in in future, there should never ever be a circumstance in which you have only one narrative, and other prominent experts cannot get their voices heard. That should never happen again. If there's any message, you know that that comes out of this, that's that's one of them. Carrie, follow the, follow the science they were saying, right? Yeah. It, yeah. It, it, sounded, it sounded like a suggestion. It was marching orders. Yeah. Follow yeah. our oh, science. I know. There's a good line that says, follow the science and you'll find the money. That's right. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's, yeah. that's kind of what we, we were. I mean, it's, 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 it's as plain as my nose on my face, my red nose. Um, and, and, you know some of the some of the the, the questions, of course, that, that come up, and I'm going to ask you, Dennis. I'm going to put you a bit on the hot speed seat because I've never asked you this question. We were talking about pharmacies and and uh, the pharmaceutical companies, and they would actually be dealing with uh, uh, the government, and maybe there's some sort of kickback or however it ended up being. As a uh, as a surgeon, did you ever actually have to deal with? pharmaceutical companies coming and talking to you and maybe offering you gifts or offering you uh, trips or anything like that? Because I've actually talked to a few doctors that have said, yes, they have. Mm -hmm. And and it's and even my daughters who are going through, uh, one's going to be a, an optometrist and the other's a dentist. They've actually already gone through that sort of process. They've already been uh, given trips to go and uh, talk to 
other optometrists as an example. So it's it's interesting to see you know, that that whole side and how it can impact um, you know what, what's going on in in terms of healthcare. So the answer to your question is yes. Yeah. Um, uh, not not just uh, medications. In, in, in particular, for me, it's been um, uh, medications in terms of fighting various types of infections, but also medical equipment technology, because as a cardiovascular surgeon, um, there was various technologies that would be available. So um, as it happened, uh, they're probably, in, particularly in the first 10 years of my 30 years in practice, it was more prevalent then. Yeah. And they would say, they would say, well, we'd like you to come to a conference and we'll pay for your trip. Yeah. Um, but we want you to look at this technology. Okay. Well, the reality is, is that um, I like to think of myself as an ethical physician yeah. and surgeon. So I'd look at the technology and if I didn't, if I didn't like it and there was competing technology that was better, we would use the better technology from yeah. a company that didn't pay for my trip, yeah, for yeah. example. Yeah. So, uh, so yes, that's, that's something I think now though, certainly in the last 20 years of my practice, that became dramatically less okay. uh, than, uh, than before to the point where it never happened probably in the last five years of my practice. Okay. So I think that's, that's pretty much stopped now, but I can't say that doesn't occur for, um, you know, the, I guess I could say the non-surgical group of physicians that are dealing, you know, with, with, because uh, pharmaceutical companies, look, they've got, they've got salespeople that, that have to try and convince a physician to try something, yeah. you know, so this, this issue of bribing physicians, I think probably still, probably still occurs. Mm -hmm. You know, and I can't, I, you know, I would be uh, lying if I said uh, that it, that it, that uh, it doesn't. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it does. Yeah. So for either of you, how, how did this all happen with the College of Physicians and Surgeons where they basically just said, you, you can't use ivermectin, you can't use hydrochloroquine. Like who would have actually given that, uh, that, that call? Do we know that yet? Would that have just come from, it, obviously it came from someone and did it just come from above and whoever that above was? Do we, cause I want to name names to be quite honest. Yeah. Do you want to start off uh, Marco? I, I don't know any names unfortunately. Yeah. 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 Um, well, I but, don't, go ahead. But, but we know uh, that uh, these organizations have been uh, quite efficient in twisting arms uh, and and bullying their members, their members. I mean, you know, this is this is not state agencies. Um, I think, in large part, for the same reasons, uh, they uh, wanted to sort of um, they, these these situations present opportunities for people uh, to exercise their inner bullies. Mm -hmm. uh, and and show that they are in charge and they are in power. There are far too many people, I think, often all too willing to demonstrate that they are good soldiers and they do what the government mm -hmm. tells them to do, rather than to represent their members and and voice their 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 issues. Yeah. Um, Dennis can speak to this uh, better than I can. Uh, mm -hmm. That uh, 
drugs that are approved, uh, once they're approved, physicians have uh, an enormous amount uh, of discretion in how they use it and who they use it with and in what circumstances. Yeah. And that went out the window and medical uh, professionals, mm -hmm. medical associations were dictating uh, yeah. to doctors that they should use this and not that. And, and that's, that seems uh, like an enormous uh, power grab. It, it, it is. And what Marco's referring to, is, the terminology is off-label use of an approved yes. medication. And um, <clears throat> so here's something, uh, and this is the ugly belly of what has occurred. Um, I can't name particular people within AHS, but this is what I can say. There were people, uh, you know, the pharmaceutical industry was being paid by governments, right, to provide these vaccines to people. Yeah, yeah. They were making billions, if not trillions of dollars. Um, <clears throat> a lot of that money went to uh, leaders in various areas, people in leadership positions, uh, to force um, the mandates on us and, and, to, and to force the vaccines. Uh, in the way in which they did. So yeah. for example, let me just tell you, this didn't happen just with physicians. There were many pastors, religious people uh, in leadership positions that received, their church received $300,000. Yeah. But they had to speak to their congregations and be in support of going ahead and getting the C-19 jab. Yeah. So you can imagine what many physicians that may have been in leadership positions, uh, particularly public health officials, what may have happened. Um, I don't have hard evidence of that, but I do have knowledge um, that, that funds were being used uh, to um, enforce loyalty to the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah. That's why I said you know, earlier, if you wanna understand the science, follow the money. Yes, yeah, in, in some cases, I remember coming across a document uh, in, in, in the process of doing uh, this research uh, in which uh, the federal government uh, made available significant amounts of money uh, to schools. Um, so, for example, the one that stood out because I used to work there uh, years ago was Mount Royal College mm -hmm. received uh, $50,000 uh, to promote uh, the experimental jab uh, mm -hmm. to their to their students yeah uh, no liability whatsoever right yeah. uh, Mount Royal College wins nothing loses nothing uh, yeah. is, is is a completely sort of amoral situation in yeah. which they promote what they think if yeah. they're not thinking uh, is a good thing and yeah. they get this whack of money for pushing uh, this this thing uh, to to their students yeah. you'd think that they they would have yeah. some duty of care yeah. uh, to these young people right yeah. at least to be skeptical no 50 yeah. grand off you go and a lot of that had paper trails so i, I was going to bring up the schools and universities because again daughters in university and you go through it yeah. go through their paperwork and sure enough they receive grants from the government for various different things and one item was then in uh um immunization and inoculation or something i no. think it, it was two eyes anyways and then uh there was also municipal associations and unions uh also received a kickback so all this money Jerry Diaz. <clears throat> all this money was coming in 
and basically saying, yes, uh, you know, get the jab and we'll give you know, your association 50 grand or whatever it is. So why would you not? It almost looked like it was free money at that point. Yeah. And, and, and there is, it's almost like they felt they were getting money for doing something good because there was yeah, all this virtual signaling, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, they, they were made to believe that this is a safe and effective uh, procedure. They yeah. were led to believe that people were, in fact, signing up to do this uh, in full consent. So, so where's the harm, right? Yeah. They're yeah. already going to do it and they're yeah, going right. to give us money for it. Yeah, um, right. Uh, to me, yeah. that doesn't excuse him, but but yeah. essentially that seems to have been the situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To get back to the College of Physicians, again, I, I'm not a doctor. I don't claim to be at all. Uh, but I understand that each province has its own College of Physicians yeah. uh, and Surgeons. So how does that work? Like if they... Where where would this again? I'm I'm going to ask almost the same question, just a different way. Where would this have come from? Would it have come from the uh, the World Health Organization to say this is what you need to do, and then it would have gone in memorandum to each individual province's uh, college of physicians, and then brought down to the doctors? Like, did you find that any any way, Marco, when you were doing in your research that way? Um, the extent to which I have is that uh, Canadian provinces, when it comes to uh, professional associations as well as um, ministries of governments and whatever else, whenever they want to do something, they look at the province next door. Oh, yes. And yeah, then yeah. at the other province next That's door. That's true. Yeah. And so whoever announces whatever nonsense first yeah. uh, is usually the one that sort of sets the tone. Yeah. Uh, and if it's Quebec or is Ontario, then the ripples just just move on their own yeah. uh, without people even asking the mm -hmm. question. And yeah. so it, it doesn't. What I find is that often there is no conspiracy. There is no nefarious sort of conversations about how to do this. It's just the inertia yeah. uh, of, of the nonsense that people say, oh, OK, well, you know, that's what Ontario is doing. Therefore, we must we must do it, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're well over an hour right now. Um, I think we could probably go back and ask some of the questions. So again, if anybody wants to ask some questions, put three question marks ahead of your question in the comment, just, it makes things easier. Although I, I do pretty much read every single one. So if it's a question, I'll flag it. Um, and there's a couple of questions in regards to some APP stuff. We'll get to that too. Um, and I think we briefly talked about this one, Dennis. Uh, were doctors really that ignorant to the COVID panic because of training or are they as conditioned as we were growing up with vaccines that work or should we have been more suspicious and stop recommending the jab? That, that's a good, that's a really good question. Um, Thank you, Judith. And there's, there, there are, there were some doctors that absolutely mm -hmm. bought into the narrative. There's mm -hmm. no, no question about it. And there are many that didn't. The, the, the problem that the, the medical community had, um, if they wanted to push back at all, they were at risk of losing either their hospital privileges or they were at risk of losing their license. Yeah. And so they were for their own personal and family economic interests really compelled to go along with things. Yeah. And, and I, you know, th this to me, um, is why the entire College of Physicians and Surgeons should be fired. Yeah. Um, I think any college that would force physicians to, um, for example, um, 
you know, compel a treatment on somebody without full disclosure of the potential risks and benefits Absolutely. Um, is, is a problem that, that, that physician, that if a physician, you know, makes that decision on their own, that they're not going to uh, provide uh, informed consent, well, then the, that physician requires retraining mm-hmm. or, or suspension and some sort of sanction. But yep. the college itself, the whole college should be fired for what they've done yeah. to physicians. Yeah. Now, and, and again, no so question about that. We, we've even, uh, this could spill over into some of the stuff that's uh, happening with uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson as well, because the, uh, whatever the colleges of uh, psychiatric that he's involved with, it's the same sort of thing. They're just kind of overstepping their boundary and, and basically saying, no, you got to listen to us. And there is even more outrageous because he's, he's yeah. over political opinions. Yes. Uh, exactly. He's yeah. got, he's yeah. got absolutely nothing to do uh, yeah. with any kind of complaint regarding his, his uh, uh, practice as a, uh, as a, as a counselor and, and what have you yeah. simply because he retweeted something that, Pierre Poiliev had, had, had tweeted. That's right. And, exactly. and, and at some point made some other remark uh, yeah. that was, you know, purely political. Yeah. His yeah. own opinions. Right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, that that one is 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 almost Soviet-like, if not Soviet-like, uh, in its uh, in its uh, attempt at uh, imposing some kind of political orthodoxy. Yeah. So here's another question that, and we briefly touched on it, uh, but it's it's good to actually get it out on paper here. Uh, on the screen. This is from Chris. I've heard that Kenny imposed the restrictions after telling everybody we are open. We're open for good. We're open for summer, open for good. Uh, due to the contract signed with the pharma companies, apparently the Alberta government was only paying 10% of retail costs. And of course, uh, Dennis had uh, mentioned about that. I wonder if Dr. Modri has any information on contracts signed and if we, the public, should require a transparent copy of the contract and if the cost difference was worth the loss of life and economic impact right well again that's a good question and we sort of touched on it a little bit my understanding is that um overall uh the alberta government pays about 10 percent of the retail cost for all pharmaceuticals yeah and that um if we did not follow world health organization and cdc recommendations regarding um, uh, the vaccine that we would be forced to pay full price for everything. Yeah. Okay. Now I haven't seen that contract. This is, this is secondhand information. Um, and, uh, but I think it would be, I think it'd be worthwhile, you know, looking at that. And I think, you know, maybe, maybe the the current provincial government could shed some light on that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it would be a very interesting question for them to answer. Yeah. Um, now, you have to understand as well that, you know, nobody in caucus, including Jason Kenney when he was the premier, is a physician. So yes. they rely on expert opinions. Yeah. But where they made a mistake was not permitting an alternative um view expressed by other experts mm-hmm. that that was that was the mistake but i but i uh, surmise from what i've heard that uh, jason kenny didn't allow those discussions to take place yeah 
Do you want to make any comments on, of course, the, we were following the National Citizens Inquiry, and uh, it went, uh, I think it was 10 different cities across Canada uh, between like April and, and May, June. And, uh, of course, they found out a lot of stuff. And then we in Alberta had our own inquiry. And from my understanding is that uh, our premier, Daniel Smith, doesn't want to open that to uh to interpretation until it's already been you know until it's all said and done and they've actually read it all out but do we can we make any comments on any of that because uh, obviously like even having dr or uh, lieutenant colonel uh, david redmond right from the get-go say this is the way we should have approached this uh this pandemic you know uh, put the elderly and those uh more more prone to uh, you know, getting getting the disease and possibly dying kind of quarantine those people off but the rest of us can and live on our own do we have any comments that either one of you would want to make about what's happened with the national citizens inquiry or the uh the alberta inquiry i i don't have any first-hand knowledge of what is going on except to mm -hmm. say that i think is is a well worthy exercise yeah uh, i would i would honestly like to see uh, something formal set up, yeah. like like an inquiry, like a proper legal inquiry mm -hmm. into into what happened, uh, because as I said, uh, we must not lose sight of the fact that uh, the wholesale violation of people's rights and constitutional rights um, is is uh, uh, is enormous and and has the potential of set up precedents uh, for the uh, for the future. So it's important that we deal with this uh, and, and that the sooner that we deal with this, uh, the better, mm -hmm. because we still have a, a certain, a, a certain um, proximity of sight uh, yeah. about the things. And, and it's important to, to, to deal with them, not, not 50 years later, not 100 years later. I, I, I don't want 100 years later some prime minister uh, stand up in the House of Commons and and, and apologize for this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we, we need we need this to happen now, so mm -hmm. that the proper safeguards and all the changes that need to be made. Or, and I am half convinced that we don't need we don't really need that many changes. That what we need to do is follow the rules that we had to begin with. Yeah. Period. Mm -hmm. yeah. Red Redman has said that uh, many a time. Yeah. Uh, and so. Uh, I, I think that the people who have volunteered their time and, and, and effort into, into having this citizenship, uh, this citizen um, um, inquiries is, is, uh, is tremendous. Uh, but we need something with teeth uh, and we need something that uh, is enforceable. Yeah, You're, you hit the nail on the head, uh, Marco. I think we'll learn something from the, the um, Preston Manning's inquiry here and also the National Citizens Inquiry. Um, but then it does, then it, I think there's an absolute necessity to take what we've learned from those two inquiries and use that as the springboard to a, to a, um, to a legal uh, inquiry so that people can be held accountable. Yeah. Because if you don't hold people accountable, then, then they can get away with it in the future. Yeah. So that, that to me, I think is a, uh, Marco hit the nail on the head. Yeah. There, there's been violations of fiduciary duty yeah. uh, and all sorts of responsibility yeah. from the medical profession, uh, from the bureaucrats, uh, from the politicians. 
yeah. uh, from you know people in the school boards. Uh, yeah. All of these people need to be called to the mat and 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 hold to account. I, I yeah. definitely agree with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and and of course we're all a little bit older than uh, maybe some of the viewers here, but uh, you know when we were growing up. Um, we trusted our doctors. We found them to be credible. We, we totally listened to their advice. And again, we were, we were having one-on-one -on -one conversations with doctors. It seemed to have been like maybe in the last, I've noticed probably in the last 10, 15 years, you're now almost treated like cattle now going in to see the doctor. You're given your 15 minutes that you can go and talk to them, but you go in for nine o'clock because that's your, when your appointment is and you don't see them until two o'clock. And, and you go through that sort of stuff. Uh, and and the, the problem that I've got right now is that we need a way to fix this mistrust of doctors, especially what's what's happened in terms of the uh, uh, the uh, the jab and and even just we're, we're we're just not sure whether or not they have their our best interest in anymore. It's almost like we assume that they do. But I've got, and I'm sure you guys do as well. You've got some friends that uh, and family that uh, are are in in the hospital and they're they're trying to get fixed up. And I really question whether or not those people are on the right path to get well. Um, and and I don't even know what to say about that. I've had conversations with uh, with family members and uh, and friends about that. Um, but if anything, it's kind of opened up the door that we're no longer just looking at doctors. Um, we're looking at alternative sources of uh, medication. Maybe we're looking at naturopath or uh, uh, holistic medication or or uh, you know Eastern medication, if you want to call it that. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if you guys want to make any comments on that because it, it's just one of these things that I, I just find that it's, it's these conversations that people think about, but we're not actually having them. And I think we need to get, again, I'm, I'm very much into talking about getting together with uh, family and friends and, and, and having this, this sort of conversation because this ends up, we talk about what's happened already and how can we prevent this in the future? And again, we uh, here at uh, the APP, we try and tie this back into how can APP or what solutions would we have would be able to uh, to solve the these sorts of problems going into the future? And of course, I would say, well, if we were uh, a sovereign nation, or at least we we had some uh, independence with uh, uh, with Canada, we'd be able to dictate our own rules on how we want to deal with it. Maybe we don't have a college of physicians. Maybe we have something else. Uh, and so, um, any any comments on on any of that? Well, the first comment I'd make is that. Um, Trust in physicians is, has really tanked yes. as a result of, you know, what has happened. Yeah. And I think it's going to get worse as more and more knowledge um, is understood by the public yeah. as to the actual harms that have occurred, not just from the mandates, but also from the uh, C-19 jab. Yeah. So, you know, trust is earned, right? And... Uh, um, and it takes years oftentimes to earn the trust, but that trust can be lost in a moment. And yeah. for physicians, I think uh, they're probably at the lowest ebb of trustworthiness now uh, in their history, um, which I find, you know, embarrassing to 
to be honest with you. I think right now it's also incumbent on patients to uh, ask the right questions if, if they are able to. Um, what is my problem? Um, and uh, and uh, what's what's the cause of this problem? Could there be other causes? Yeah. Um, and um, what are the solution? What are the options for treatment? What are the risks and benefits of each one of these options for treatment? Mm -hmm. um, I know when I was uh, in practice, I worked with a lady by the name of Rose Carter from Bennett Jones, and we created a, a three-page um, uh, informed consent form, which um, had to be understood by the patient and then signed and yeah. witnessed by a loved one. Yeah. Uh, for every single statement in that three-page informed consent, yeah. um, and I think I think that uh, it's it's um, necessary for the for physicians to act in that in that way um, if they want to earn the trust of their patients. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I I tend to agree uh, a good deal. Uh, the first issue is the trust. Um, for about 30 years, uh, political scientists have been tracking the levels of trust in institutions and people in uh, certain positions of institutional office uh, across uh, the post-industrial society. So in, in Europe and the United States, in Australia and Canada. Mm -hmm. And uh, and there has been a steady decline of trust in people in office, people in power, uh, politicians, doctors, lawyers, and what have you. Yeah. So this is not new. What is new here is that I bet you that when when they update that research, the dive in trust uh, from doctors is going to be significant. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and so it's only going to accelerate uh, the the issue, and that creates a problem. It creates a problem not just because you know it's important that people trust their doctors, but because uh, proper uh, medicine is not not unlike teaching, for example, mm -hmm. uh, it is best unfolded when there is a proper relationship, yeah. uh, and if there is no trust between the doctor and the patient, the patient and the doctor, um, then you, you have an impaired sort of uh, medical system. Yeah. Uh, I, I think one of the things that could be done, and I, I very much like the idea, I don't know how Dennis feels about this, we never talked about it, but uh, I, I very much like the idea that, that uh, started floating about 30 years ago, and it seems to have come back, uh, our current premier mentioned it, medical savings accounts. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's right. Uh, the idea of medical savings accounts creates or restores the, the pecuniary relationship between the doctor and the patient. The mm -hmm. patient sees that there is something that they have that they are exchanging with the doctor for a service. Yeah. And yeah. that that service needs to be good, yeah. needs to be civil, uh, needs to be excellent to some extent. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so that goes, I, I, there is no uh, silver bullet, I'm not suggesting that it is, yeah. but it goes a little way, I think, uh, to take steps in restoring that relationship between the patient and, and the doctor in a professional way. Yeah. Marco, I like I like that suggestion. You know what it reminds me of is the recommendations for a voucher system in the education system as well. That's yep. true. Very yep. much the same yep. idea. Yeah. 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 So 
I know Dennis has to leave. I just want to, there's two good questions that I like Dennis's comments on here. Sure. So uh, from Chris, it says the feds are going to be closing down holistic sources and supplements. How can we in Alberta stop the feds? And, uh, and uh, another follow-up with that is now the government is planning to take away natural supplements. So, so we on the same boat without access. So how are we going to go forward? Everything will be priced out of sight. Holistic doctors cost should be covered under AHS as well. And of course, it's the same thing with uh, dentist and uh, and um, uh, optometry, which both my daughters are going into. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, but uh, like, yeah, yeah. I, well, let me, let me re respond yeah. to that. Um, I, I have a feeling that, uh, but I'm not 100% certain of this. I think the provincial government, uh, through their own regulatory authority, um, uh, can prevent the federal government from shutting down holistic health centers. Okay. Um, and uh, I don't know a lot about the legislation that currently exists, mm -hmm. uh, but as you know, in a very overarching fashion, um, if we have an empowered provincial government that can restructure our relationship with Canada, everything that ails Alberta um, and that upsets Albertans regarding what the federal government is doing to us yeah. can be resolved. And, um, That's very and true. of course, that comes with, uh, with a referendum on secession, which doesn't mean that Alberta leaves. Um, it, it, it means it triggers the Clarity Act. And as I've said many times before, the fourth paragraph of the preamble, the last line states, negotiations might lead to secession. It doesn't mean they will. But if you want to deal with all of the problems that exist, um, then you know get on board with what we're doing um, and uh, register your intent to support a petition to force a referendum. Yeah. Uh, regardless of what you think um, about staying within or without Canada. And there's two good points I'll make about um, we may be closer than we think. For example, we did get 62% of the voting electorate uh, in favor of ending equalization. Mm -hmm. Well, we can't end equalization without leverage, and we have none. But that referendum on secession gives us that leverage. We also know that from that Angus Reid survey from February, reported on February the 4th of 2022, that 73% of Albertans are disillusioned with the federal government. It's even higher in Saskatchewan at 76%. Mm -hmm. Point is, is that we're hoping to be able to force that petition through the Citizens Initiative Act yeah. uh, sometime in 2024. So, uh, and then it's up to the provincial government uh, than to decide on when they would hold the referendum. Yeah. So, uh, so I, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I do have to leave to, to get on to another uh, call. I'm already a couple minutes late for it, but uh, thank you very much for having me on, Mark. It was really Absolutely. wonderful chatting, and Carrie, you always yeah. do a great job hosting. So oh, thank you, thank you, Excellent. so kind. <laughs> thank you, Dennis. I appreciate you being here, and thank you for having me. It's yeah. a uh, it's it's a great chat. Yeah. yeah, very very good, and we'll do it again, Marco. Oh, for sure. I'm I'm still going to keep Marco on just for a few more sure. minutes, though. Okay. So we'll uh, we'll let you go. Thank you again, Dennis. So, so long. Yeah. All right. Cheers. Thanks. Bye bye. And off he goes. Um, because the, obviously there's a few more questions here that I think we could probably do, and of course we want you know the reason you're on here is to talk about 
your book and and ideally you know people will end up going out and purchasing your book i'm going to order one right after yes buy, buy buy one for yourself and you, for every member you know we family. uh we we do have a bit of a library at the whistle stop cafe in mir alberta and actually we were just out at a, another uh, uh event of lack of a better way of saying it uh and uh, in lethbridge and it was about the coots for uh, the boys and uh and how they're dealing with their legal case and jason levine who is covering their story wrote a book as well and uh i should actually have the book down here but i don't so, but uh so you know that book is definitely going to go into the library and uh yours will go into the library it's a great great way to have a bunch of books where people can go into a cafe and just pick up something, you know, typically in the days of the old used to have um, the magazines maybe, and uh, nobody yes. looked at the magazines anymore. So now we're, we're forcing them to look at uh, books if that's possible. So uh, we'd definitely be uh, interested in, in, uh, in having that book there too. Um, a few people were asking, uh, and again, I'm, I'm not, uh, this is just a question and we don't even have to officially answer, but a, a few people have asked this sort of question. How do we Albertans stop paying federal tax and teach Ottawa a lesson? And I think with that being said, obviously I would never recommend that, but it is, it is something that uh, we need to have leverage. And it, and just like Dennis was saying is we need to have some sort of leverage and um, you know, paying, not paying tax as a provincial government would definitely do that. So if you're not fully aware on how the tax system works is all the provinces except for Quebec. And as far as I'm aware, pay all their That's taxes right. to Ottawa. And then Ottawa gives us back the amount that they, you know, that basically the provincial amount would, would collect. If we didn't have Ottawa involved and we had our own tax collection system, the money would stay here until such time as we would give it to Ottawa, right? And so if you can even just think about how many millions of dollars that would that would entail, billions of dollars, would come here and we'd actually be able to do stuff with that money before we would have to send it to Ottawa. Unlike what Ottawa is doing and sending the money off to who knows where, as everybody probably knows, where it's going to a different country for whatever particular reason, and we have no say in that. At least here, we would be able to have that say. There's there's something to be said about uh, having our own uh, tax collection. Oh yeah, for uh, sure. The, the, the way Quebec does. Yeah. Um, I, I I definitely agree. I I yeah. do not recommend stop paying taxes. <laughs> I I've, I've dealt with this back. I'm, I'm dating myself. Yeah. Uh, back in the 80s, uh, when there was the anti-war movement. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I I used to live in Quebec at the time, and there were people uh, who were essentially recommending that people would stop paying. I think at the time was close to two percent uh, of the uh, of the budget going into into uh, uh, defense, and so they were recommending people to withhold yeah. uh, two percent or, or whatever the percentage was, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and and that resulted into all kinds of trouble for yeah. people that, that they don't need. The government yeah. has. Uh, essentially endless resources to come after you That's for true. withholding on your taxes. Yeah. And yeah. so you'll be buying on trouble that you don't need. Yeah. That said, um, there, there are solutions. And one of them is, of course, to push for uh, Alberta to have its own uh, its own taxation system. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and, and then we can have, again, going back to that leverage that we, that, that we keep talking about. Yeah. And, yeah. 
and you know if it's good for Quebec, why couldn't it be good for yeah. Alberta? And again, like that's that's just the tax. I mean, there's the the, the uh, Canada pension plan. There's no reason why we couldn't have our own Alberta pension plan. And again, uh, dealing with dealing with our own funding for that. And again, we could go into policing and and because Ontario does that, uh, I believe New Brunswick does that. So there are different ways that we can do that. And of course, as uh, Alberta Prosperity Project, we look at. Um, which ways we can actually be prosperous as a province. And yes. that would definitely be one of the ways that we could do that. And by the way, I, I, I can say this uh, with without perhaps uh, eliciting uh, yeah. a, a wave uh, of, of hatred. Yeah. Uh, we should also look at Alberta uh, taking charge of his immigration system. Oh, absolutely. Um, You're right. You know, and, and right now, I mean, the, the time has never been better considering the mess yeah. that the feds are making of the federal uh, yeah. immigration system. Yeah. Uh, right now, we have people coming in that that, we, that the federal government is bringing in. You've, you've seen the reports sleeping on the streets in Toronto because yeah. there's there's no housing for them. That's right. If, if we should take uh, charge of our own immigration system, uh, I'm sure that we could do uh, just as bad a job, but we could do better. <laughs> Yeah, definitely a better job, I would hope. We couldn't do worse than that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we could do better uh, and we could insulate uh, the province and our communities from that kind of nonsense. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And, 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 you know, just even being in Alberta, in and around and seeing the amount of homelessness uh, that's out there now, uh, I'm shocked. Uh, and it, it's, it's when you're going into the big cities and, and especially like, course in calgary so we see the tent cities that are kind of being formed in downtown under the bridges and but that's that's just one thing that i've seen and and you look at the states and it's like every city has something like that because they're just bringing uh immigrants in and uh you know nothing wrong in in on face value with that but you have to have an infrastructure in order to be dealing with that you need housing you need yeah. Uh, jobs and uh, and that is certainly not happening. And if if basically the feds are saying, okay, you know what, we're going to bring in uh, whatever that number is, forty million uh, per year, and uh, Ontario is going to keep one million, and uh, uh, Alberta is going to get three hundred thousand. I'm kind of making those numbers up, but basically that's that's the the way it's done. Is that they're they're being told where to go, and then they show up on our doorstep, and it's we're in the same boat as every other province. We're yeah. going, what do we do with these people? Under, under the current system, uh, yeah. Quebec has first dibs on the people they want. Okay. Uh, and so they write what is called a certificate of selection mm -hmm. uh, that then goes to Ottawa. And Ottawa then accepts those people if they want to. Uh, yeah. They still need to meet the federal criteria. Yeah. Uh, and then they go to Quebec. But yeah. That means that the process is initiated uh, in the province. In this case, yeah. it would be uh, it would be uh, Alberta. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, uh, the the other issue, of course, uh, which is uh, very much connected with this, is the fact that uh, people want to bring tons of immigrants, but are not prepared to dedicate uh, the amount of resources and the priorities that it takes uh, to be able to do this. Yeah. In both cities, both major cities in, in Alberta, in, in uh, Edmonton, and in Calgary, uh, we have... Uh, well, so, sort of environmental loonies in charge, uh, you know, dedicating all kinds of resources to climate emergencies yeah. and all this nonsense that has yeah. absolutely nothing to do with the yeah. province, yeah. first of all. And second is pushing all kinds of resources 
including their own time as yeah. as mayors yeah. uh, instead of trying to organize uh, the, their lives their systems and the problems of homelessness and all these issues that yeah. both cities are undergoing that's right uh, yeah. so that that is also a big problem yeah. uh, right there it's it's yeah. self-inflicted yeah you know we and we talked about the doctors receiving uh kickbacks from the pharmaceutical company and and even the college and uh and of course we we question whether or not the municipal governments well actually all governments i guess do get kickbacks from various other entities in order to uh, facilitate what's what's going on and you know so the question is is that is our own local government getting something uh and and i'm, I'm not making accusations i'm just questioning whether or not they're getting some sort of a kickback for their own uh their own self or maybe to uh, benefit certain programs that happen in calgary or edmonton or, or any city um, to see what what they're actually going to be doing, you know, with 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 the homeless, with other programs. Uh, you know, we we in in Calgary of are back and forth about our uh, our new arena, and we're not quite sure what's going on with that. Um, and if that if that's coming from the federal government or uh, or some sort of federal entity uh, for those kickbacks, or maybe it's even coming up from higher up. Maybe it is coming from uh the world economic forum or or maybe it's coming from the world health organization i don't know but it does seem to be that everybody seems to be on the same page rather conveniently it's not like calgary has a different concept on what they should be doing with their city than edmonton they seem to be on the exact same track and if you go to any major city in canada winnipeg's in the exact same boat regina's in the exact same boat we're all I'll call it NDP or socialist governments uh, in their, in their, uh, their main uh, population center. And they are doing exactly what everybody else is doing. There are all these sort of spin-off yeah. uh, out, uh, outside issues yeah. uh, that uh, tend to grab and indeed sometimes even monopolize the attention yeah. uh, of local politicians. Yeah. Um, the, the wisdom that all politics is local it, is still good. Yeah. Uh, and the first thing that Alberta politicians, especially the municipal ones, uh, should be doing is examining and redrawing maps and lists of where are the priorities for yeah. the taxpayers and the citizens and the uh, and the residents of these these towns and cities in in, in yeah. this province. Yeah. Uh, the rest of the stuff. It may sound sexy. It may sound, you know, uh, nice and cool, and and maybe they they can even get to have trips to uh, Europe and and what have you, where all these, you know, Euro environmentalist um, yeah. conferences and all that stuff takes place. Yeah. I, I appreciate the lure of of that kind of stuff, but their job is to look after the issues right here. Yeah, and that's what they should be doing. That's right. Yeah. So I think that that's, I mean, we still have a few more questions. I guess they're all relating back to CPP. They're relating to uh, WHO. I think we've kind of uh, covered a lot of that stuff. So um, I, I, let's just give you the floor for maybe a minute or two. And, uh, you know, is there anything else you want to talk about in terms of your book that uh, might be enlightening to people? Uh, so, you know, basically get them to uh to take a look at it uh, one of the things <clears throat> that um both 
Barry and I are political scientists. So, mm-hmm. you know, this is not a medical book. is 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 a book that examines um, health and medical policy uh, in light of the politics. So yeah. I, I want to make sure that uh, people understand that. Yeah. Having said that, because we are political scientists, uh, we look at um, where is power being wielded here and, and what is the nature of that manipulation of power. Mm-hmm. And one of the interesting observations, perhaps I would say the most interesting observation that, that uh, readers will find in the book uh, is that, and, and it's a big worry, uh, is that there has been a transfer of power to people who are unaccountable to, to the public. And, and that is the so-called experts. Yeah, uh, and and this creates a significant problem because these people are not accountable. You can't just vote them out of power. Yeah, and we don't know their names. Uh, mm-hmm. We don't know what they look like. So there are people that the transfer of power has been to an entity that is nearly anonymous in some sense, mm-hmm. that is exerting an, a significant amount of power over our daily lives, uh, and. Uh, and their anonymity shields them from our ability to say no and mm-hmm. and, and pushing back. Yeah. And so what this leaves us is with a, a kind of a, a system in which uh, if we don't pay attention, uh, if we don't get involved, if we don't let our voices be heard and manifest our dislike and and our distaste for this kind of politics, then what we're going to have is this rule by experts to solidify, and that will erode the nature of our democracy. One of the things that is particularly, I would say, um, singular about Alberta is that it's one of the very last few places in which people take their individual freedoms more seriously than in most other places in North America. Uh, And so this is part of our culture uh, and uh, we deserve to work harder. I think we're already working hard, but we deserve to work harder. Our children deserve are working harder uh, in order to preserve that part of our, our heritage. If there is anything in this book that uh, is a bit of an alarm uh, is the fact that uh, the the rising power of these bureaucracies has the potential to erode our the, the core of our democratic system. Yeah, that's very true. Well, that's great. Uh, there are two questions. I'm just going to show them just because they're, sure. they're they're great. You follow what's going on with the WHO and the treaty that that is about to be signed by Canada. I actually think that treaty has been signed, and that. I, I- Go ahead. And that treaty is basically saying that the in the next pandemic, we have to listen to what the WHO says. So if they say we need to be locked down, you know, climate emergency, if we need to be locked down, we have to do what it is based on the treaty. I, I believe that's exactly what has happened. Yeah. That's pretty uh, alarming. And, yeah. And, and people have sounded alarms, um, yeah. both uh, in the province and uh, in Ottawa. Yeah. Um, there, there's been a couple of MPs uh, that that have been quite vocal uh, yeah. about about this. Uh, it essentially erodes uh, the sovereignty of the state yeah. of, of Canada as a whole. But because uh, health is really, I mean, the federal government likes to pretend that uh, they have something to say about 
uh, about health. Uh, the reality is in the jurisdictional arrangement of this country, uh, the only areas in which the federal government is allowed to exercise uh, any kind of authority over health is the Canadian Armed Forces and yeah. uh, the Aboriginal communities in this country. Yeah. The rest is strictly provincial jurisdiction. So yeah. the extent to which this kind of arrangement um, made by the federal government um, is already in place, it erodes yeah. uh, provincial authority and yeah. provincial jurisdiction. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, uh, as Albertans, uh, we should not stand for that. No, I agree. And of course, I'll leave with stones here. Why doesn't Alberta leave? We're in an abusive relationship. Leaving is the right thing to do. Thank you, Stone. <laughs> you know I, I, I think that um, th there are varying opinions about that, of course. Absolutely, and, uh, there are, yeah. Uh, and, and, and that is a legitimate opinion. I, I yeah. do not mean to undermine it by saying yeah. that there are other opinions. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things that is great about this particular organization where you are is that it allows for a, a robust discussions about these things. In many other places, yeah. this notion that... Uh, a uh, territorial jurisdiction inside a country should leave is is taboo. People are yeah. persecuted and prosecuted, yeah. and and uh, and all sorts of indecencies committed on them, accused of treason and sedition and whatnot. So yeah. we are very lucky that in Alberta we have the kind of culture uh, that allows us to do that. Yeah. Um, one of the things that perhaps if if I uh, I have a plug if I may yes. um, is that uh, we we have done some work on this at at, at the Holtain Research Institute, mm -hmm. uh, and one of the things that uh, you might want to look if you happen on our website is uh, holtainresearch.org uh, is is the fact that uh, there is a set of circumstances that makes independence more propitious under the current arrangement mm -hmm. uh, and so if you if you search for winning conditions uh, in our website uh, you'll find an essay that sort of talks about uh, the sorts of thing that the sorts of things that we can learn from the processes that have already been kicked into place in Quebec okay. um, and and it has the the um, the historical endorsement if you will in that sense. Uh, that many of these things have already taken place in Quebec, and we don't need to reinvent uh, the, uh, the the wheel. Yeah, I'm just going to quickly post that up here. Uh, of course, this is a live show, so we do things as you well know. As yeah, uh, no, that's good. Possibly I... it. So we will uh, do that and set that up so in case anybody does want to take a look and see what uh, what you're involved with, and uh, and again take a take a look at. Uh, uh, the, the book written uh, uh yes if you click on publications there is the second uh this the, the second part of the of the menu there uh you will find uh connections to the first book and there the second is. book yeah. this is the this is the second book uh you can purchase it from a website as well as from amazon uh you can have the, the book uh signed and dedicated to somebody uh, if you want oh, to uh, offer awesome. a present or or anything yeah. uh it the the book is 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 big but it's it carries well to uh uh, to sit on a on a patio or a, or a beach with a with a beer in your hand and the and the book in the other. <laughs> yeah, because that's definitely what I want to be doing on a on a beach. But you know what? Having said that, that's kind of where I'm I'm reading my stuff now. I, I you know reading and listening to podcasts and uh, and uh, yeah you know being a being a musician and a DJ entertainment guy. I used that's all I used to do was listen to music. Now my my phone is full of podcasts and. Uh, 
this mine. Yes. Yeah, yeah, going down a bunch of different holes. So it's uh, it's it's interesting times for sure. But uh, so again, thank you so much for for joining us, Marco. That was that was excellent, uh, entertaining as well as informative. And uh, again, we're at an hour and 45 minutes. So I'd like to thank everybody for staying online and watching and listening and commenting and asking questions. You can keep asking questions. I usually look at them for the next couple of days. And if I can quickly answer something, then by all means, I will. Uh, we do a weekly APP webinars every Wednesday. Uh, my apologies for the, the shortness on how uh, we were able to do the, uh, the advertising for this one, but most regular people uh, or regular viewers, I should say, know that we do these at uh, seven o'clock on Wednesday. So by all means, please check back with us on Wednesday. And if for some reason we can't do one, which I can't see in the next foreseeable future, we will be here every Wednesday at seven o'clock in Mountain Standard Time. Um, and of course, one of the other things that we like to do is acknowledge the volunteers that, uh, that uh, help out in the Alberta Prosperity Project in our chapters as well as uh, you know, people even working on websites or getting involved with events. And if you want to be involved, please go to the albertaprosperityproject.com website and you'll find the links in how to do that. And with that, thank you so much, uh, Marco. And I wish you and uh, everybody watching a uh, fabulous rest of your evening. Get out there, enjoy some uh, almost vitamin D, although it's, uh, it's kind of setting here, but uh, the sun's setting, but I'm definitely going to get out and uh, maybe even go for a walk and enjoy the, uh, the rest of the evening. So um, hope to see you at an event soon and uh, maybe we'll get you out speaking at one of the events too. That would be, that'd be, uh, that'd that'd be great. That'd be great. Thanks, Thanks so much again uh, okay. for this. Uh, it's been, uh, uh, it's been a pleasure. I, I, I know that, uh, you know, we, we, we had this coming for a while, so I'm very, yeah, very, yeah, very, I'm very pleased that it's finally uh, taking thanks. place. So thanks again. Great. All right. And with that, thank you. Have a good night. And uh, I'm just going to set up this and we do the outro and